I want to begin tonight by reading to you something that I did not write, but I read it, and now I'm going to read it to you. Uh, this is an account of what the family might look like 35 years from now. If the trends toward redefining marriage, redefining parenthood, and expanding the definition of the family continue. Uh, while this is a fictional account, obviously, the examples are all based on actual case law and court decisions that have already been made and the precedent has been set. That's the year 2048. You and your grandson are going to a private prayer meeting. You've been to this apartment building often enough that you know a lot of the people who live there. There's old Mrs. Garcia who is raising her grandchildren. Her daughter got caught up in drugs and men and disappeared. Her three grandchildren have different fathers, so she hopes she can keep the kids, but who knows what the courts will decide. There's Miss Marisol, whose little girl lives with her some of the time, but when she broke up with her boyfriend, in order to be mean to her, he took her to court to be declared a de facto parent so he could get shared custody of her daughter. He did it out of spite, but because he wanted to have access to the little girl as well, if you know what I mean. Under the de facto parenting law, he counted as a parent because he spent enough time with the child and she used to call him daddy. So Miss Marisol's daughter is with her old boyfriend part-time and she can't do anything to stop it. She didn't fight too hard because of her friend Lisa. Lisa got her daughter taken away from her completely. Lisa went into hiding with her daughter when the court ordered her to turn the little girl over to her former girlfriend part-time. Somebody found out where they were hiding and turned them in. Her little girl was taken away from her and Lisa did jail time. So Miss Marisol figured she was better off not fighting with her ex. Then there's Sherry and Rebecca who are married to each other. They don't have sex with each other, they have sex with men, but nobody cares about that. They each have two kids with two different guys, so there are four kids with four different dads, which actually means no dads. They each raise their own kids under the same roof, they share health insurance, but that's about it. There's Billy Joe Bob who hangs around his mom's apartment. He has a couple of kids by a couple of different women. He doesn't feel any obligation to support any of them because he doesn't love those women or their brats. Billy Joe Bob doesn't make sure he doesn't earn very much money, so he doesn't have to pay any child support. His mom yells at him a lot, but he just laughs at her and does as he pleases. There's Luke and Paul, who got married when they were in the military. They thought it would be cool to get off-base housing as a couple. They figured when their tour of duty was up, they'd get divorced and it would all be cool. But Paul got greedy and sued Luke for his pension. Luke ended up broke and living in this broken-down joint. Then there's little Ned. He has two mommies and two daddies. I should say he started off with two mommies and two daddies. They quarreled amongst themselves, went to court over his custody, and worked out an elaborate plan for sharing Ned among the four of them. He used to cry at school every day because he never knew who was coming to pick him up. Most of them got tired of being on the cutting edge of parenting and lost interest in Ned. So now Ned lives here with his natural mom, Janet. Sometimes one of the fathers or the other mother will come over and demand to take him on an outing, but his story ended pretty well because mostly those people just leave him alone. Then there's Emily. Emily was bought and paid for by a guy who wanted access to a little girl. 
He bought an egg, hired a surrogate, and used his own sperm to have this little girl. The law now says that artificial reproduction is a service and children are a commodity. Anyone who can pay gets to do anything they want. Emily's teacher figured out that something weird was going on. She called Child Protective Services, but Emily had lived with her dad, or should I say her manufacturer, for seven years before anybody stepped in to help her. Then there's Tom. Tom fits this old saying, nice guys finished last. He married some guy from Latin America who wanted a green card. They agreed to get divorced as soon as the immigration was done. But while that was going on, his husband, Alejandro, acquired a live-in girlfriend who got pregnant. They used to ask Tom to look after the baby while they partied. He didn't think too much of it as he was only trying to help out. When Tom and Alejandro got divorced, Tom found himself sucked into a child support suit. The law states that any child born to one partner during the life of their union is automatically the child of both. So when the girlfriend established his husband as the father of her child, Tom became the parent also. They stuck him for child support. They had it planned that way from the beginning. Tom used to have a pretty nice car and live in a nice house. He still has a decent job, but now he's stuck in this wreck of a place while they drain him of his money. Like I said, nice guys finish last. You go up the steps to the prayer meeting at Miss Lila's apartment. Not too many people are coming these days. Today it is just Miss Lila, Mrs. Green, and the Villanovas. The Villanovas used to be very active in Couples for Christ, a worldwide organization for married couples. When some same-sex couples wanted to join, the organization tried to accommodate them, Christian charity and all. But those couples didn't feel at home because so many of the Couples for Christ programs talked about how men and women were different and how to understand and talk to each other and treat one another better. So the same-sex couples sued. The judge made Couples for Christ take out everything that had to do with gender differences. There is not much point to the organization after that. Mr. and Mrs. Villanova didn't know what to do with themselves after the organization closed. They had lived and breathed Couples for Christ. So Miss Lila brought out the old Bible from the closet, and everybody bowed their heads. They prayed for a while and then drank coffee. You remember hearing back at the turn of the 21st century how much the government was spending on taking care of kids without their own parents. Back then, it cost the U.S. government $112 billion per year. That's the equivalent of the GDP of New Zealand. You don't want to think about what it costs today to fund families who can't take care of themselves. As you walk on home, your grandson asks you, why is Miss Lila so sad? You tell him her brother used to be a pastor. He's been in jail for the last 10 years. Why did he go to jail? You know that old school building over by the highway? Sure. That used to be a Christian school. Your grandson's eyes get wide. There used to be Christian schools? Sure. Then the city tried to tell the pastor that the school had to teach stuff that he didn't want to teach. Well, what kind of stuff? Well, they told him he had to stop teaching that God created men and women different but equal, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that kids need a mom and a dad. Your grandson's eyes get really wide now. He hasn't seen either of his parents in a long, long time. You tell him a lot of people started coming to the Christian schools because they wanted their kids to learn the Bible and nobody else was teaching it. One day the police came to force them to get rid of their Bibles and books. The pastor blocked the doorway of the school, the police arrested him, and took him away. 
Some of the parents tried to fight back, but when the police started taking kids away from their parents to put them in foster homes, most of the parents gave up. The pastor's still in jail. He never backed down. A lot of people admire him, but they're afraid to say anything for fear they'll lose their kids. You aren't afraid, are you, Grandpa? That's why we go over to Miss Lila's, isn't it? That's right. Grandpa, you stood up for the pastor, didn't you? There's a long, silent pause as you walk on for a few steps. Grandpa, you didn't do nothing to help the pastor, did you? No, I didn't do nothing. Like it or not, that's where our culture is headed. That is where your family is headed if you don't intentionally choose a different direction. The current of our culture will sweep you away and your family along with it. Take out your worship folder. We've got a sermon outline in there about parental priorities. Start tonight a new series on parenthood. Uh, Mark Twain gave this advice on parenting. He said, when a boy turns 13, put him in a barrel and feed him through the knot hole. When he turns 16, plug up the knot hole. One day a young daughter came running into the house incredibly disturbed. She said, Daddy, Daddy, you won't believe it. Anna, her six-year-old sister, Anna just said the BS word. The dad said, she said, what? The bad one, Daddy, Anna said BS. Dad said, sweetheart, what, what does BS stand for? Dad, Anna said Britney Spears. I've had more fun from parenting uh, than from anything else. But there is a lot of pain and regret in my parenting. Uh, If there's any area of my life that I wish I could do over, uh, it would be in the area of parenting. Uh, The rest of my mistakes, honestly, I don't care so much about. But the mistakes that I've made as a father... On your notes, we're going to take a look at parental priorities, and I want us to look at our first parental priority. That priority is this. Parents' priority is to gradually transfer a child's dependence away from the parents until their dependence rests solely on God. Our first parental priority is to gradually transfer our child's dependence away from us until our child's dependence rests solely on God. You know, when our children are little, they depend on us for everything. But as they grow, we shift that dependence from us to a dependence on God. Now understand, our goal as parents is not to make our children independent. The goal is not to get them out of the house to fend for themselves. The goal of parenting is not independence. The goal of parenting is not dependence on the parent or codependency. It is dependence on God. Now, where do we find this principle? Well, it's found throughout Scripture. Specifically, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is it follows right after Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, that's where Moses revealed the Ten Commandments. 
And in chapter 6, speaking of these commandments, Moses gives this teaching on parenthood. He says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. These are the commands, the decrees, and laws the Lord God who directed me to teach you. So that, you, so that who? So that you, your children, and their children after them would fear the Lord. Parents, children, grandchildren, generation after generation after generation. As you teach your children to fear the Lord and follow his commands, not only will you affect the next generation, you will affect generations after that. You realize that as a parent, God has put within you the power to change generations. Generation after generation. Now how do we transfer dependence from us to God? Well, Deuteronomy 6 gives us two priorities that we as parents must do in our lives. The first one is we must love God. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A devout Jew would recite this passage of Scripture every morning, every noon, and every evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now notice it does not say to give God a head nod. It does not say to love God a little bit. It does not say to acknowledge that there is a God. It says you must love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. To love God totally is our first parental priority. And one of the most dangerous things that we can do as a parent is to expose our children to just a little bit of love for God. You know, when you go to get immunized and and they give you a shot, whatever illness it is that you want to be immune from, they give you just a little bit of that illness in the shot. You know, if it's polio, measles, mumps, rubella, whooping cough, whatever it is, they give you just a little bit of the illness and a little bit inoculates you to the real thing. Many parents unknowingly give their children just a little bit of God. They give them just enough of God that it inoculates them and makes them immune to all of God's goodness, His glory, His power, to the demands that He places on our lives, to the gifts that He wants to bring into our lives. You know, their kids know just a little bit about God, but they don't know God personally, they don't know God deeply, they don't know God in a life-changing way. Yet Scripture teaches us that we are to love God with all our heart. The problem is that we live in a world full of things that can distract us, that can distract us from loving God with all our heart. As parents, as dads, we want to provide for our kids. You know, usually as men, we think to ourselves, and with perfectly good intentions, we think, well, I just want to give my kids more than I had growing up. I want them to have it better than I had it. So we work hard, pouring ourselves into our careers to provide for them, but we're not providing for them the thing they need the most, which is a deeper relationship with God and with us. 
we become consumed, distracted by our careers. You know, we want to provide them with all the best opportunities, and so we plug them into soccer, we plug them into ballet and gymnastics, and all of a sudden, the family schedule is so busy, we don't have time for the things of God. And we work extra hours so that we can buy a nice house, so we can buy a nice, safe car to transport them in. And when they're 16, uh, we get them a car, and then they get a job so they can pay for the insurance and the gas, and then their schedule fills up with activities, with work and school. And we're trying to provide all these things and all these activities for them until we become child-centered parents rather than God-centered parents. And our lives revolve around our children rather than our children revolving around God. I was talking to a young father. This was several years ago. I hadn't seen this family in church for a few weeks. And so I saw him there just uh, at the gas station, actually. I said, hey, how you guys doing? Where you been? He said, well, I signed my kids up for a soccer league, and it turns out that they have some Sunday morning games uh, the last few weeks. And I want to teach my boys uh, about keeping their commitments, so they've been playing in the Sunday games. Now, teaching your kids to keep their commitments is a good thing to do. In fact, that's one of the things as a parent we need to do. But you also have to teach them to discern their greatest commitment. And what that dad had just done is he had taught his sons that soccer is a higher commitment, a higher priority than church. You know, you can claim to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yet, yet, you know, as soon as you get distracted or as soon as another opportunity comes along, uh, you do that. Parents, don't kid yourself. That sends a significant message to your children about what is truly important in your life and what's truly important in their life. You know, how important is your involvement as parents in church to your kids? How important is it to demonstrate a solid commitment to Christ and to the church? Look at the results of this study about kids who grow up and become active Christ followers as adults. If mom and dad went to church, then 72% of kids will attend church as adults. 72%, that's pretty awesome. But you know what? we're still losing one out of four. Pastor Will Chalicom told me one time that he'd read that one out of four people on planet Earth speaks Chinese. One out of four people speaks Chinese. That's why he and Raina only had three children because Will didn't want to have to learn another language. (laughs) If only mom went to church, the percentage drops to 15%. A dad, how important is your role in this? If only dad went to church, the percentage of adult Christ followers is all the way back up to 55%. I mean, dads never underestimate the value of your role in leading your children to follow Jesus Christ. And if neither mom or dad went, the number plummets to only 6% of kids will follow Christ as adults. Parents, do you love God with all your heart? Or just with some of your heart? Because some, just a little bit, may not be what our kids need. They need the whole counsel, the whole glory of God. You know, what if Jesus Christ were to walk into your house unannounced and just observe you and your family? What what would he see about your commitment to God if he looked at the magazines on the nightstand or if you're a bathroom reader next to the toilet? 
What if Jesus would watch the TV shows that you watch with you? What if he logged onto your computer and looked at the history log? What if he listened to the language in your house? What if he looked into your checkbook, looked at your calendar? What would that say about your priorities? What would those things say about your heart for God? Not just what you say, not just what you hope, not just what you pretend to be, but who you really are. The first parental priority is to love God with all of our hearts. Second parental priority that Deuteronomy 6 teaches us is that we must lead our families. I mean, look at the spiritual leadership in Deuteronomy 6. 6. It says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We impress these commandments on our children. To impress means to make sure that somebody has a clear and lasting understanding, memory, or mental image of something. A clear and lasting understanding, memory, or mental image of something. You know, we talk about the things of God when we sit at home. We talk about the things of God when, when we're out and about through the day. We talk about the things of God when we lie down and when we get up. Spiritual talk is just something that we, we, we do as the ebb and flow of life. It's not something we do once a week as we go to church. We lead our children spiritually throughout their lives. You know, if parents are indifferent about attending church or if parents are negative or critical of church, if, if they gripe about having to go or they complain about it on the way home or they're critical of the service, you know, if they go home and they, they have roast preacher or roast worship leader or roast uh, children's worker for lunch, you know, don't be surprised if your kids aren't excited about church. You know, who'd be excited about something that you're critical of all the time? Parents, you set the tone. You are to be the spiritual leaders. You are to lead, guide, direct your children in their faith. Edward, Duke of Windsor, said this about America. He said, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way the parents obey their children. The thing that impresses me most is the way that parents obey their children. I mean, parents, are you leading your children or are they leading you? Think about that. Now you may ask, how do I lead them? Well, write this down in your notes. You lead intentionally. Spiritual leadership doesn't happen by default. It doesn't happen by accident. We must intentionally lead our family counterculturally. When culture goes one way, we don't go that way just because everybody else is going that way. We value a Christian family identity because we know that where a Christian family identity is strong, peer pressure is weak. But wherever Christian family identity is weak, peer pressure is strong. We must intentionally be God-centered parents with intentionally God-centered marriages and an intentional God-centered personal life. If not, our kids will easily walk away. You know, just because everyone else does something, that doesn't mean that you need to let your kid do it. Just because everybody else does it, every other teen stays out till 1 o'clock, that doesn't mean your teen can. Just because your teen, you know, everybody else goes to this movie or everybody else does this activity. No, you need to set high standards. 
I love the story of the single mom who was struggling with her son, who, who always wanted to go see R-rated movies with his friends. And, and she would uh, object, you know, you shouldn't be going to that movie and watching that stuff. And he would always say, but there's just a little bit of bad stuff. And so she said, I'll tell you what, you can go see this R-rated movie, but first you have to help me make some brownies before you go. And he, the teenage son loved brownies. And he says, this is great, can I lick the bowl? She said, sure you can. But what I need you to do is I need you to go out in the backyard and find some of our dog's dog poop. I want you to come give me a spoonful of dog poop. And the son was like, that is just nasty, Mom. And she said, no, 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 just one small scoop. Just bring that in and help me make the brownies, and then you can go to this R-rated movie tonight. And so he went out into the backyard, and he came in with a, with a spoonful of, of dog poop. And Mom said, oh, that's way too much. And so she cut it in half, and she took half of it and dropped it into the brownie mix. And he said, Mom, we can't eat that. And he said, sure we can. And stirred it up. Would you like to lick the bowl? He said, no, that is disgusting. She said, but it's just a little bit. It's just a little bit of bad stuff. And all of a sudden he realized that just a little bit of ungodliness is too much. It taints the whole thing. Parents, you are in charge. And just because everyone else is doing something, that does not mean that it's the right standard for you and your family. And the goal is not to be concerned about your children's immediate happiness. The goal is to be concerned about their long-term eternal holiness. So how do we lead them? Well, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And the Hebrew word for train there is the word kanak. And kanak means to initiate, to dedicate, or train. We train our children in the way they should go. We dedicate them to the Lord. We initiate a craving within them for the things that are true and right and holy and pure. And when they see the, the, the fruit of that in our lives and in their own lives, then they realize, you know what? This godly living works. Our role is to transfer dependence. They no longer depend on us. They don't operate independently on their own. We teach them to depend on God. And we do that when we love God with all our heart and we intentionally lead our families. Now, if you want to half-heartedly let life happen, uh, let me promise you, life will just happen. And you can kiss your kids' faith goodbye. Lead them. Lead them. You lead them. God placed you in that role and he calls you to lead them, to train them. Now, here's some important uh, areas where we as parents need to train our children. I've just got one verse here. I just quickly went through Proverbs, pulled out, pulled out one verse on each one. There are hundreds of verses in Scripture about each of these. But first, you need to train them to manage God's money. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Parents, if you don't teach your kids... How to manage their money in a godly way. Who's going to do it? Watch this video. For close to 20 years, families have been changing their futures through Financial Peace University. I started it with a bad suit and an overhead projector. I set the room for 135 people. Four people came. And now today we've had over one and a half million families go through this course. That's over two million people across this nation. You may be wondering, 
What is it? What Financial Peace University is about is a return to God's ways of handling money, but in a very practical, step-by-step game plan showing you exactly how to do it. FPU is about learning how to control your money. When you make these dollars behave, you're going to get this sense of power over your money that you've never, ever had. Don't move into a home with 62 debts or six debts or, or two debts and no money. You move into a home broke with a bunch of debt around your neck, Murphy will move in your spare bedroom, bring his three cousins broke, desperate, and stupid. Marriages are being made stronger. Couples are learning how to talk to each other about money and getting on the same page. The closest statistical correlation to success going through this program are those that actively engage in this budgeting process. And for those that are married, they're doing it together. You change your life when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. When you get disgusted and you have that moment where you say, I've had it! I'm not going to live like this anymore! We're done! We're changing this thing! Talk about the why. Talk about your dreams. Ask your spouse, what would we do? Where would we travel to? What would we buy? What would be changed if we became something as a couple where we were working together on that? Now, man, I'm sure you know this, and we've been talking about it for the last few minutes, but it's very true. Women are different, aren't they? Say yes. One of the things you may or may not know is they have a gland right in here that you don't have. It's called the security gland. And when she is feeling insecure due to money issues, that gland spasms. And it is attached to her face. This nine lesson, 90 minute class will challenge you. Now this is a boot camp, I'm your coach. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you uncomfortable sometimes. You're going to go home and go, I don't really like him tonight. Now, now if I agree with that, which would make you wrong. That's what happens when the coach coaches you, doesn't it? He kind of rubs you the wrong way. There's a little friction on there, right? I've had some good coaches, and they lit me up a time or two. But it caused me to go places I couldn't go otherwise. Life change is never easy, but you won't be alone. You'll watch a DVD each week and discuss it with your small group. Your classmates will encourage you and help you take those first steps. You'll walk away from FPU knowing how to relate with money. You'll learn how to pay off debt and save for the future. And you'll learn how to protect your plan. We aren't born knowing everything we need to about money. We learn, and there's no better place to learn than the Word. The Bible offers more than 800 scriptures on money, and Financial Peace University is based on that solid foundation. You are literally going to be doing things every week differently than you ever have based on biblical principles. Things like doing a budget, things like working with your spouse, things like singles having an accountability partner, things like teaching your kids so that a godly man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's not theory. This is actual application on everything. What would happen if the people of God started handling money God's ways? What would happen? If the, what would happen to the kingdom of God if the people of God were out of debt? All you need is a plan. Financial Peace University is that plan. Parents, you can't teach your children something that you don't know. And that's why we offer the Financial Peace University class. Next, you need to train them to carefully select their friends because he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You need to train them to watch their words. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Train them to be responsible. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. 
I train them to guard their minds, for as a man thinks within himself, so he is. I train them to be generous. A generous man will prosper, but he, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Train them to be pure. Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. Train them to be married. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Train them to work. One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Train them to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. I want you to know that we are very, very serious about partnering with you to lead your children to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And that's why our, our ministries around here, that's why Rockbrook for Kids is so important. That's why Rockbrook Youth Group is so important. That's why we've started the Young Adult Service. You know, but honestly, it is not our job to train your kids. It's your job. It's your job. We're simply trying to partner with you. You know, if it's our job and all we get is one hour a week, sometime not going to happen. But if we partner with you, if we give you the opportunity, if we give you the facility, if we provide you with the resources to train your kids, if we can build you up as successful parents, as successful believers yourself, then you can work to transfer your child's dependence from you. Because when they're young, they depend on us completely. But when they're older, we don't want them to depend on themselves. We want to teach them to depend on God. How do we do that? First, we as parents love God with all our heart. And we intentionally lead our families. Let's pray together. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. God, apart from your word and left to ourselves, uh, we see examples every day of where we would be and what would happen to us. But in your grace, you have granted us your word. You have granted us power of your son Jesus Christ the presence of the Holy Spirit God you have given us tools and opportunities through the church and and uh, through other Christians and small groups and other uh, teachers resources material God you've given us so much to help us to be able to parent effectively but God we've got to avail ourselves we've got to avail ourselves so I would just pray tonight that you would stir our hearts as parents, that we indeed would, would dedicate ourselves fully, completely to you, that we would allow you to bind up the wounds and the hurts that we have that we receive from our parents and grandparents, that we would find the healing and the help that we need from that in order to be able to break the cycle and to be able to set a new course for generation after generation, for our children, our grandchildren, and the ones to come. God, help us. Because apart from your help, we have no hope. Maybe you're here tonight as a parent and you just want to open your heart to Jesus Christ and say, Christ, come in. Give me the dedication that I need. Give me the love for you so that I can love my children so that I can lead and train and guide them effectively. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.